Pastor Walt and uh, Brenda are in Kentucky right now getting to visit with Spencer and Sarah. So I'm sure that uh, they send their love. We uh, send our prayers that they may rest and recreate as best as Pastor Walt and Brenda can. And uh, that they have safe travels. And I know that they miss us as we miss them. So. One of my favorite TV shows had an episode where my favorite character in it, he had twins. And he was afraid that he wasn't going to love them because he was afraid that he didn't have the capacity to, you know, the natural capacity to love. It just wasn't in him, and he was afraid of that. So when they finally bring him the babies, they lay him down on a bed in front of him, and he starts to talk to him. And he says, I didn't know babies came with hats. He says, you guys crack me up. You don't have jobs, you don't have a dollar in your pocket, but you got yourself a hat. So I guess everything is going to be okay. A comedian, favorite comedian of mine was doing a routine about his three kids, and he talks about the middle son at the time. And he says, he's just learned to walk. He's a walker, but he can't carry anything, so it's useless. I put a backpack on him, and he just falls down. Get up. You look like a turtle. It's empty. There are certain eras where children were to be seen and not what? And not heard. In Jesus' day, he has mothers bringing little children to him and his disciples kind of like pull a groin to try to keep them away from this important rabbi. Rabbis have no time for kids. If you think about it, this kingdom, the kingdom of the world where we live, not much use for kids, little kids. They don't have a lot of practical purpose, right? They don't have jobs. They don't have money. And they're too little to carry anything. But we learn in the kingdom of heaven that they are the greatest, that they are the most elite of citizens in the kingdom of heaven. See, the Gospel of Matthew has some inherent qualities in it that helps us to understand why he chooses to portray Jesus the way that he does. He's concerned mainly with a Jewish audience, and I thought about this. It's it's well known that that Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience, and I thought about why, and it just kind of hit me this week in studying for this, is that he spent his entire life betraying his people. His entire adult life as a tax collector, he betrays his own people because he goes to work for the Romans, and he's collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans, why they call them publicans. They're taking money and giving it to the republic, if you will, the oppressing power over Rome. So when Matthew finds his Jewish Messiah and begins to follow him, when it comes time to tell his fellow, he wants to tell his fellow Israelites. Because again, he spent his life, his adult life on the outside. And now he's back in. He's back in and he wants to share it with them. He wants them to know who the Messiah is. So he writes to this Jewish audience. Matthew's gospel relies on the Hebrew scriptures more than any of the other gospels. 51 either quotes or direct allusions to the Old Testament scriptures, to the Hebrew scriptures, so that he could let his people know that this guy, this Messiah, he is the one that our fathers told us about. He is the one. The rabbis use certain types of forms of argumentation uh, for, for rules of interpreting scripture. 
Um, and, and two of them are the most common. Uh, Jesus is seen as doing that in Matthew's gospel and in no other. Because in Luke's gospel, it doesn't make sense for him to argue on behalf of the cal vahomer, if you will, the argument from the least to the greatest. If he takes care of sparrows so that you can find everywhere in the world, then how much more? That's the argument from the least to the greatest. It doesn't make sense in Luke's gospel because Luke doesn't have any rabbis. Theophilus doesn't have any rabbis living in Greece. Uh, Greece. Greece, that's right, Greece. Greek, okay. So Matthew portrays Jesus as rabbi, and he's not portrayed like that anywhere else. So the the text in Matthew also uh, has substantial interest in Jewish observance. You you see him going through Jewish observance in in Matthew that you don't see him do anywhere else. And only in Matthew's gospel do you find these words on his lips, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So it brings us to the kingdom of heaven. Like Pastor Wald introduced to us, told us, kingdom of heaven is used 31 times in the gospel of Matthew. And those words, kingdom of heaven, are used nowhere else. And probably the reason that he does is because by the first century, modern Jews at that time were beginning the practice of not pronouncing the name of God. In the gospel of Luke, it's the kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the kingdom of God. Even in the Gospel of John, it's the kingdom of God. But, but Matthew, being concerned with this Jewish audience, who has now begun to practice as a, a, a pious practice, that they don't pronounce the name of God. Most conservative Jews today, uh, uh, Orthodox, if you will, don't pronounce the name of God also. And if you see somebody writing about God, it will say G blank D by not saying it. So he says the kingdom of heaven, the holy one blessed be he. He uses all of these Jewish idioms, if you will, when they're directly attributing something to God. So 31 times. By Jesus' day, those scholars are pouring, completely pouring over all the messianic prophecies. All of the books, Daniel and Ezekiel and all these books talking about the coming of the Messiah. Because by Jesus' day, they've had it. They've been occupied now by, for nearly 700 years, and Rome is the one that's lasting the longest, and it doesn't look like they're going away. So they have a particular picture of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. So they're pouring over all of these prophecies that you find in Daniel and Ezekiel. By the way, I noticed one commentator say, you know what? They poured over all the scriptures. They thought they had them all figured out. They thought they had a picture of the Messiah. And when he shows up and starts to walk and talk among them, they don't recognize him at all. What makes us think that we have any more of a handle on the prophecies than they did? Just a certain humility we need to have when we talk about sure about fulfillment of prophecy, if you will. But they had a vision. They had a vision of what Messiah would be. They read all of these texts talking about the son of David. They read all of these texts talking about the, the, the new Moses, the liberator, the one that's coming. So what they pictured was they pictured this, this Davidic king that was going to come and to throw off their oppression. In other words, they were going to do something about the kingdom here. That they were going to take the kingdom on earth and they were going to make it. This king was going to make it the kingdom of heaven. Because as far as religious practice goes, they've got it knocked. They had the law. 
And we know how to walk by it every day. We're good. We're good. We don't need a spiritual Messiah. We need a physical Messiah. We got to do something about that Caesar guy. So all of them have this picture. So when these words begin to come into their consciousness at the time, when John looks at them and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, they have a view that wakes them up. Their hearts start beating a little faster because they know that this David is coming. They know this David is coming that's going to, that's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. And we will have our kingdom of heaven where? Right here on earth. Then Jesus comes to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is what? It's come near. It's here, he is saying. Those are the first words that he utters in the gospel of Mark. In the gospel of Mark, there's no nativity. There's nothing like that. He goes for the, he goes for the temptation. And when he comes back after the temptation of the wilderness, these are his first words. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And he's holding out his hand when he does it. It's at hand. It's right here. So when he starts preaching things like that, people wake up. Their pulse starts pounding a little bit because they're thinking that the kingdom of heaven is on its way here. We're ready for David. We're ready for Solomon. We're ready for Moses. Bring it on. Every time Jesus spoke of the kingdom, bright banners and glittering armies and the gold and the ivory of Solomon's day, Israel being completely restored, that's what gets their pulse going. And then Jesus tells them that they ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus says, truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Something greater than Solomon is here. He even tells his disciples, as you go, proclaim the good news. And the good news is what? The kingdom of heaven is what? It's near. It's here. There was a party, a, a political party, if you will, called the Zealots back in that day. And it numbered probably twice as many as the Pharisees. And what they were ready for is that they were ready for armed insurrection against Rome. They were a guerrilla army. And they were just waiting for a leader. They're just waiting. They're ready to pick a fight. And they're just waiting. But as Jesus' ministry goes on and goes on, they become more and more disappointed because this revolt is not coming, obviously. He begins to disappoint them. His behavior begins to disappoint everybody who is looking for King David. He seems to be attracted to the weak. He seems to spend more time with the minority, if you will. He likes hanging around with people who have no voice. He doesn't like hanging around with the strong ones, the ones that have the power, the ones that have the riches. He kind of likes hanging around with the, the poor people, the sick, the sinner. He insults then Israel's glory days by comparing King Solomon to a common everyday flower. Look at the lilies of the field. I tell you, I tell you that not even Solomon in his glorious looked better than that. The one time that a, crowd, that a crowd has had it and they try to force him to be king, he kind of mysteriously disappears. And the crowd's going, what, what, wait a minute. 
we, we have the majority here. The majority rules on this planet. That's what this kingdom is about. And we have a spoken majority here. And we want to make you king. And he just disappears. And the one time that, that Peter finally does wield a sword on behalf of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus heals the guy that he hit. Philip Yancey in the book The Jesus I Never Knew says, To the crowd's dismay, it became clear that Jesus was talking about a strangely different kind of kingdom. The Jews wanted what people have always wanted from a visible kingdom, a chicken in every pot, full employment, a retirement plan, a strong army to deter invaders. Jesus announced a kingdom that meant denying yourself, taking up a cross, renouncing wealth, even loving your enemies. And has he elaborated more and more in his ministry? As he elaborated, the crowd becomes more and more disappointed that they're not going to have their King David. Jesus never offered a clear definition of the kingdom of heaven. But one thing that I can tell you that it isn't, and I think the one thing that Pastor Walt could tell you that it isn't, is that it isn't where? It isn't here. It's the one thing I can tell you about the kingdom of heaven. It is not here. And to say that the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven are opposites is almost selling it short. They are so opposite, it's beyond black and white. It's beyond light and dark. They are so opposite that, that just saying that they're opposite uh, doesn't quite cut it, if you will. So I want to spend a little more time, as Pastor Walt did, of talking about the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to see who's most comfortable or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven as far as citizenry goes and the citizens of the kingdom of the world, that's where I want to spend the time. What can we know about the kingdom of heaven by looking at who belongs there? Who belongs in the kingdom of heaven? Who belongs in the kingdom of this world, if you will? So to go back and to go back to the earliest use of the kingdom of heaven, this is the first time that Matthew, that, that Jesus uses it himself. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He comes flat out and says it. The poor in spirit. Think about this. What do the poor know by instinct, if you will? What is it the poor know that most of us do not know? Dependence. Humility. Simplicity, cooperation, a sense of abandon, if you will. They wake up every day without the burden of what, the only burden they got is where they're going to get their next meal from. So what they approach the day, the only way they know how, the only way that they possibly can, they approach the day with an empty hand and they're able to hold it out. There's no pretense with the poor. I think C.S. Lewis once said that, that I don't believe that Christ has a preferential preference for the poor. I don't think he likes the poor better than he likes anyone else. It's just that the poor have no pretense. They don't pretend about anything. They have to depend on someone else. Jesus is saying these are qualities that are greatly valued in the spiritual life, but elusive, if you will, for those of us who live in comfort. They're not more virtuous, although that I have found that they seem to be more compassionate. They're often more generous. 
but they're less likely to pretend to be virtuous. You get what I'm saying? There's something about them. There is no pretense to them. Yancey adds, he says, they don't have the arrogance of the middle class. The middle class and the upper class can skillfully disguise their problems under a facade of self-righteousness. Why? We can afford to do it. We can afford not to be real. We can afford to put on a mask and try to fool everyone around us. The poor can't. They are more naturally dependent because they have no choice. They depend on others simply to survive. And the ability to depend on someone else for something as vital as food, as vital as the base things of what we need, food, clothing, shelter, if we could depend on someone else for that, then blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next time he says it in the Sermon on the Mount, our blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we have poor in spirit. It's the poor who feel most comfortable in heaven. And the reason that the poor feel most comfortable in heaven is because it has to be given to them. See, if Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, as Pastor Walt pointed out, it makes him the king of the kingdom of heaven. Does everybody agree that Jesus is and will be and always will be the king of the kingdom of heaven? He is king of kings, lord of lords. And what he decides to do with the kingdom is to give it to us. So the only way that we can, that we can be in the kingdom of heaven is to receive it. We have to hold up an empty hand. Very hard. For those of us who are comfortable, very hard to do. So we have the poor, and now we have those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. Paul uh, talks about, uh, talks about uh, living within the bounds of, of civil law because it's hard to, to do what Jesus has called you to do if you're, in the, you know, if you're in jail for tax evasion, if you will. I brought that up in a class once, and someone said, well, he could start a prison ministry then. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, <laughs> you don't carry a very good reputation. Paul said, follow the laws up until the point to where they collide with God's moral laws, but follow the laws so that you can go about carrying about your ministry a little easier. He says, and by the way, if you, su- if you suffer for righteousness' sake, that's why you should suffer. If you're suffering for being a jerk, he said, well, don't take credit for that. So you have to be persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. Between 1980 and 1991, nearly one million Central Americans crossed the U.S. border seeking asylum. How many remember that? That most were fleeing political repression because there were civil wars in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. One million refugees from those wars headed for the U.S. border. In El Salvador, the military killed over 10,000 people by 1980. The military killed over 10,000 people, including Archbishop Oscar Romero, four U.S. churchwomen. In Guatemala, government-backed paramilitary groups killed 50,000, made 100,000 disappear, and perpetrated 626 village massacres. At the time, U.S. federal law made it not just difficult, but impossible for any of them to seek asylum in the United States. Our federal law made it impossible for them to come in. 
And so they, most of them were, uh, uh, were incarcerated. They were put in detention camps, and then they were sent back. And, of course, when they were sent back, what would happen to them? That's right. In 1980, Jim Corbett, Jim Dudley, and John Fife and a handful of other Tucson, Arizona residents began providing legal, financial, and material aid to Central American refugees. Their decision to do so was, uh, and openly oppose then federal law was inspired by a mixture of shocking refugee stories, personal encounters that they had with them, political sympathies, and religious conviction. Dudley and Corbett were both uh, Quakers. Fife was pastor of Southside Presbyterian Church in Tucson. After he went to his church and he shared the concerns that he had for these people, the church decided that they were going to make their church building a public sanctuary. They hung up two banners on their church, two huge banners that said, This is a sanctuary for the oppressed of Central America. Immigration, do not profane the sanctuary of God. A rush of churches and synagogues and student groups began to follow suit, and by 1985, the sanctuary movement had become a national movement. 500 sites across the United States, all in opposition to federal law. Be persecuted for righteousness' sake. After 1984, what's amazing is that if you look at the constitutions of the Presbyterian, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, the American Lutheran Church, the American Baptist Churches, uh, the Baptist Churches of the USA, and the American Rabbinical Assembly, they all have statements in their governing constitutions supporting any of their congregations who want to become a sanctuary for the oppressed. Isn't that cool? So the poor, who then, for righteousness' sake, are persecuted, they belong in the kingdom of heaven. And then, of course, Pastor Walt told us who the greatest in the kingdom of heaven was. Who are they? The time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child whom he put among them. So truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, whoever becomes humble like this child is what? Is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So children, why? That was brilliant that Pastor Walt pointed out that sometimes we look at children and we think, you know what? They're in because they're innocent. Everybody who's in the kingdom of heaven is innocent. So that's why children are in the kingdom of heaven, because they're innocent. And Pastor Walt reminded us last week, are our children innocent? And I thought about this and I said, no, it's not because they're innocent. It's because they're the same as the poor. They really, this kingdom of the world has not a lot of use for them. You know, they can't carry anything. They don't make any money. In fact, they cost us money, don't they? But they have complete dependency on someone else for their welfare and their quality of life. With no pretension of being anyone or anything else other than who they are. I am a child. And they don't care who knows it. 
They're not worried about being something that they're not until they get a certain age. Right? They don't belong because they're innocent, as Pastor Wall pointed out. They're not. Not even babies are innocent. Now, now, a baby may not have ever committed a willful sin of his consciousness, but tell me, is there any more uh, selfish creature on the planet than a human baby? No. Human babies care how much sleep you got? Human babies care what they're doing to your bodies right now? No. Human babies care if you have enough money to feed them? No. The only creature more selfish than a human baby is a human teenager. But anyway, let me... Feeling an icy stare here. But they're fine with being... With, they're fine with whatever their worth is that they get from their mom and their dad or their family or the people that they choose to care about. They're fine with being who they are. They're transparent. And by the way, they're completely dependent upon someone else. Children can hold out an empty hand. They may demand the cookie and not ask for it. But they know that they're not going to get the cookie any other way. They need mommy and daddy. When Nellie was pregnant, I couldn't wait. Because as you know, babies are my favorite thing. But the thing is now that this is my baby, which means you don't take it home with you. You don't get uncomfortable at potluck that I'm still walking around with your baby. I get to walk around with this baby. Okay. You know, what worried me, though, is, as my, my favorite TV character, what worried me, though, is that when he became a particular age, I was afraid I wasn't going to like him because there are children of certain ages that I don't really <laughs> I don't like being around that much. And I thought, well, what do we do then? Do I hand him off to Nellie then and wait? I don't know. But what I found out with him was that whatever age he was would happen to be my favorite time. Because he was mine. And I'm sorry to tell you, but he was the most beautiful baby ever born. Sorry. (laughs) How many here have the most beautiful baby ever born? You're all wrong. It was mine. See, but others don't think so, do they? Why? Why don't you think that my baby was the most beautiful baby ever born? Because he's not yours, right? You see, our kids, our, our sons, our daughters, our child finds their worth in the value that we place upon them as parents. Other children, what do they see? Other parents, what do they see when they see other kids? What do they see? They don't see the most beautiful child because it isn't theirs. There are certain times where a parent may look at a child and all he sees is a, a nose filled with snot and a full diaper and that's all he's doing. And that's what other people see when they look at other kids. But I never, you never see that in your kid, do you? Maybe occasionally. (laughs) At one time where they flip out in the grocery store because you didn't buy them the cereal they wanted. You know that, that, that pinwheel tantrum? You ever seen that pinwheel tantrum? You know, they lay on their back and they spin around and (laughs) kicking their legs, you know? 
I'm with Jeff Foxworthy then. Foxworthy walks up to his daughter when she's doing that and says, Where are your parents? But to us, our children are greater than that. They're greater than the sum of their talents. They're greater than the sum of their deficiencies. They're greater than the sum of their sins. Why? Because they're our children. They simply belong to us. He simply belonged to me. What makes them greatest in the kingdom of heaven is that they can accept the gift of the kingdom from Jesus and not pretend that they earned it. Not pretend that they deserve to be there. All they do is look in the Father's face and see what He has done for them. And they stumble on in. See, Jesus said, and He warned us, He says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. He said, you become a stumbling block to one of my children. You become a stumbling block to someone who simply wants to be my child, who simply wants to accept the kingdom as the gift that I give them. Then things are going to go rough for you. And notice what he said. Those who believe in him, those who believe in me. Children simply believe because they believe. They believe their parents love them. Those of us who want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, all we have to know is that our daddy loves us. Our father loves us. And we've been given the kingdom in spite of ourselves. The stumbling block. Romans 9, when he speaks about Israel, he says, See, I'm laying a, uh, uh, in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall. And whoever believes in him, he actually is quoting Isaiah right here. And, and, and Isaiah says it, but Paul says him. Paul attributes the stumbling block to Jesus. Jesus is the stumbling block. And in chapter 9 in Romans, he's speaking about what happened to Israel. How come Israel missed this guy? What happened to them? They poured over the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. They were walking the way of the righteous. They were making the kingdom on earth the kingdom of heaven. What in the world happened to them? And Paul's simple answer is they refused to stumble. They, they still believed that the kingdom could be earned, that, that a life of righteousness could earn them citizenry in the kingdom of heaven, and that one day, as long as we all became righteous, then Jesus would just come and he would make heaven on earth. It's going to happen, by the way going to happen, but it isn't going to happen until those of us realize that the only way that we get into the kingdom is that we stumble in, that we trip over our own pretension, that we trip on our own righteousness, and we fall down. He later says, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The kingdom of the, kingdom of the world can't be won by dying. The kingdom of the world is won by taking force. By, by becoming the part of the majority, by having power, by having wealth, by having riches, by having all of those things. The kingdom of heaven is given because it can't be earned. 
for those of us walking around with our own pretense and our self-righteousness, we refuse, we refuse to stumble on Christ crucified. And not only do we refuse to stumble, but he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. They stand on the outside of the door and they look at us children who are trying to stumble in and they say, You know what? You're not good enough. You don't belong here. Sometimes I think of our churches. Sometimes that's the message that we give people. You're not, you don't come up to Mickey's hand. Worship on the right day. Worship right. Be right. And all along the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look and say, you know what? I think I'll believe in him. I think I'll trust my father to give it to me because he loves me. And in the kingdom, you know what? I'm greater than the sum of my sins. The kingdom of the world, we're never greater than the sum of our sins. We're only as good as the last mistake we made. It never goes away. But in the kingdom of heaven, we have the king telling us, you know what, it's yours. Because he was crucified to make sure that our sins would never ever rear their head again. That he would never call them to mind. That he would never bring them up. The biggest difference between the kingdom of heaven is that we're greater. We're greater than who the enemy tells us we are. The poor. Those persecuted for righteousness sake. And little children. Little children. We all belong. Because of the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven has been bought, has been paid for, and is being applied constantly to us and for us. We thank you that every day you hand it to us. Every day you hand it to us and tell us to stumble on in. I ask that we all can. I ask if there was anybody listening today who never felt that they were good enough to walk in, I ask that now they can trip and just fall right into the door. I ask that we who think that we have belonged for so long that today we understand and that we know and that we can realize that we can realize where our citizenship lies. I thank you for a church family that gives that love and I just ask, Lord, that we be able to do it more and to do it better. Keep us all safe. Bring us back together again. But let us not not forget that the kingdom of heaven is near, that it's right here, that it may even be within us because you are within us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.